Hello, and welcome to Tech and Learning's podcast interview with Mitchell Resnick. My name is Scott Trailer, and I'm the founder of a children's content and technology company called 360 Kid that specializes in the development of forward-thinking learning technologies. I'll be speaking with Mitchell Resnick, who is a researcher, inventor, and professor at MIT's Media Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he's also the founder of the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at MIT. Mitchell is the lead innovator behind many cutting-edge learning technologies for children, including the Computer Clubhouse, Pico Crickets, and the wonderfully successful consumer product, Lego Mindstorms. In this interview, Mitchell shares his experiences about his latest online learning product for kids called Scratch. Scratch is a unique digital creativity tool for kids which helps facilitate expression, communication, concepts and interactivity in programming, presentation development, and community-based learning. It consists of an offline application used to create projects and an online gallery for sharing those projects with other community members and the world. This interview was conducted in the spring of 2008 and has been edited for clarity purposes. Let's start with our questions for Mitchell. Let me start off by asking you, can you tell me a little bit about the meaning behind your group name, the Lifelong Kindergarten Group? Well, in our group, we're especially interested in how to help people develop as creative thinkers, because mm-hmm. it's our belief that one of the keys to success in the future is going to be the ability to think and act creatively. We're living in a world where things are changing quickly, and because of that, people need to be able to come up with innovative solutions to unexpected problems, because we will be confronted with unexpected problems. Mm-hmm. And for me, that means people developing as innovative, creative thinkers. So if that's our goal, we start looking around and, and thinking, well, where can we draw inspiration? What are good models of how to help people develop as creative thinkers? As we looked around, we got a lot of our inspiration from the ways children learn in kindergarten. And this especially with the traditional kindergarten. Kindergartens are, are in the process of changing, but at least in the traditional kindergarten, from its early roots almost 200 years ago, kindergarten has been a time where kids are constantly engaged in creating things in collaboration with one another in a playful way, where they're building towers out of wooden blocks to make a city or making pictures with crayons and finger paints. Kids in kindergarten are constantly coming up with ideas, creating things playfully with one another. And I think we've seen that that approach is a good way for learning some particular important concepts in kindergarten, learning about number and shape and size and color. But it's also very good to help kids develop as creative thinkers, where by looking at the way children learn in kindergarten, we developed what I sometimes call the creative learning spiral, the idea where in many of the best creative thinking experiences, it starts with imagination. You come up with an idea, you create something based on your idea, you play an experiment with it, you share with others, you talk to them about it, they try it out, they give you feedback. Based on that, you reflect upon it, you think about you know, what happened, and that gives you new ideas, and then you are back to imagine and you keep on spiraling out with new ideas based on the spiral of imagine, create, play, share, reflect, and then new things to imagine. So we see that spiral working really well in most kindergartens. And I think that kindergartens overall have worked well historically, and our feeling is why can't we take that same approach to learning and bring it to learners of all ages? Hence the name of our group, Lifelong Kindergarten. Mm-hmm. You know, kindergarten's been around for a while. Why hasn't that kindergarten approach to learning been adopted for learners of all ages? 
And my thinking is that it's been difficult to spread that kindergarten approach and continue it through older grades in school and through the continual learning experience as we get older because we haven't had the right media, the right technologies, the right tools. If you have crayons and finger paint wooden blocks, those are great for learning kindergarten concepts, number, shape, size, color. But as you get older and you want to learn more advanced ideas, work on more advanced projects, then just having finger paint and wooden blocks are not enough. So people have then shifted into a more sort of transmission approach to learning of trying to deliver information to students in a classroom as a way of helping students learn things. And this is where I think that new technologies can make a big difference because my feeling is that if we use new technologies the right way, we can extend the kindergarten approach to learning to learners of all ages. So what we want to do in our group, in this lifelong kindergarten group, is to develop new technologies that are in the spirit of the wooden blocks and finger paint of kindergarten, but allow learners of all ages to work on personally meaningful projects and to continue to learn in that kindergarten style, but to learn more advanced ideas and to work on more advanced projects. This is a kind of a reoccurring theme with uh, the other projects you've been a part of, not just Scratch, but also Crickets and uh, Computer Clubhouse as well. Yeah, so Life on Kindergarten has been the name of my research group for many years over the last I don't know, know, 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. So we've worked on many different projects under that banner. So the theme of lifelong kindergarten is sort of our broad vision. But then within that broad vision, we're always working on different projects. Sometimes it's developing new technologies that will help people continue to experiment, explore, and express themselves in a kindergarten style. Sometimes it's creating new sites or contacts where we can experiment with how people learn. So some of the after-school settings like the computer clubhouses Mm -hmm. that we started. So we're both creating technologies, creating activities, creating environments and physical settings or online settings that can help support this kindergarten style of learning. Our feeling is you need lots of different things to support the kindergarten style of learning. Just any one technology is not going to do it. We need a whole mixture of things to support that kindergarten style of learning. Kind of a diverse curriculum for older ages. Yes. And for us to support that, we need people with lots of different backgrounds. It can't just be a bunch of technologists building the technology. It requires tech, you know, computer scientists, but also psychologists, educators, designers, people with expertise in content areas, mm-hmm. math, sciences, and also people who are not just thinking about developing technology, but developing activities, developing different types of real-world settings to all support this. And theorists as well. Yeah. I know the work of Seymour Papert has had a strong impact on your thinking in terms of the development of the computer clubhouse and crickets mm-hmm. and scratch. What areas of Seymour's work have had the biggest influence on you? Well, a few different things. I think it's from Seymour that I got an appreciation of the importance of the design experience as interwoven with the learning experience, that many of our best learning experiences come about when we're actively engaged in designing and creating things. So with almost all of our projects, we're always thinking, how can we engage people in creating and designing, because we feel that many of the best learning experiences come about while you're creating and designing. So that's one important thing that I learned from Seymour. A second thing that I think was a very big influence for me is the importance of supporting a very wide range of different learners, that I find that too many different toys and educational activities are designed for a very particular type of learner. And they might do a good job of supporting that particular type of learner, And unfortunately, that means that only certain types of people are able to get engaged with important ideas. So 
I was very influenced by Seymour's efforts to try to broaden the range of people who would get engaged in activities to make sure that you take into account that different people have different styles of learning, different people have different interests. So really trying to think about those issues as we design things. Seymour would talk about developing new technologies in terms of having a low floor and a high ceiling. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to get started, make it easy for people to get started. There's a low floor, yeah. but then have a high ceiling. You can keep doing more and more advanced things, more complex things with it. I then extend the metaphor and say it's also important to have what I would call wide walls, meaning that you can have many different ways of getting engaged in these activities. It's not just one narrow way uh, of doing it. So I think that making sure that you connect with people's styles of learning and with their passions is very important. This idea of connecting with people's passions is also something that I took away from Seymour. In Seymour's book, Mindstorms, mm -hmm. he starts with a wonderful little essay about his own experience as a child about playing with gears. And that laid a foundation for him. He later became a mathematician, and his playing with gears gave him a way of thinking about different mathematical ideas. But an important part of that essay was Seymour says that he fell in love with gears, the, the phrasing that he uses. And I think that's important. It's not just that he learned about gears, but he fell in love with gears and that importance of engaging someone's passion in what they're learning. The lesson should not be that we then give gears to everybody. Sure. It's that we find what each person is passionate about. These things are often misinterpreted. I do remember sure. thinking about it when I was reading a book review of when E.O. Wilson, the, you know, the great Harvard biologist who studies ants, and he wrote an autobiography, and he'd written about how he got excited about studying ants at a very young age. And this reviewer was saying, we should have everybody study ants. And of course, that's not the right issue. Yeah, yeah. Studying ants was, was great for E.O. Wilson. Studying, you know, getting engaged with gears was great for Seymour. Yes. And we need to find how we can engage everyone's passion. What insights can you share in how best to make technology more personable, more meaningful, and more accessible to kids? Well, first thing is to make sure that we think of technology in terms of like a material that kids can do things with. That too often, a lot of the technology today are sort of delivering something to the kids, uh, whether it's you know, something online is delivering things to the kids. And, of course, even though it's not the kids are purely passive, the kids are interacting and clicking on things and making some choices, but I think too many technologies are trying to create an experience for kids or deliver information to kids. I'd rather think of technology as a material that kids can mold out of their imagination into things. So it's the more that you give kids the control over the technology and allow kids to shape the direction of the technology, then it's much easier to connect with their personal interests and their passions. So giving them the ability to shape, to mold, and to direct the technology allows everyone to shape the technology based on their own interests and passions. I'm always thinking of how we can make the technology in a way that, that the kids are the ones who are deciding which ways to push the technology. The kids should be pushing the technology. The technology shouldn't be pushing the kids. Do you find yourself in conversations with educators about the differences between constructionism and constructivism or behaviorism or, you know, how teachers tend to teach in class today? Yeah, so I certainly get into all those discussions. Yeah. So first of all, the way I think about constructivism, Piaget's term, yeah. For me, the core idea there is to really recognize that, that learners build knowledge structures, that learning is an active process where learners are actively constructing knowledge based on their interaction with the world. In our minds, we have lots of pieces of knowledge, and through our interaction with the world, we're actively making new connections and building our understanding. That building understanding is this active process 
where learners are, again, through their interactions, coming up and constantly constructing an understanding of the world. And in a class of 30 students, they're all going to be doing somewhat different constructions and this ongoing active process. Now, what Seymour Papert, who studied with Piaget and worked closely with Piaget, I see Seymour adding to that with his term constructionism is saying that one of the best ways to help people actually build their knowledge structures is by engaging them in constructing things in the world. It can be defined broadly. You might be constructing a tower out of wooden blocks or constructing a poem with words or constructing a picture on the computer screen. Those are all ways of constructing the world. And I think Seymour's main point when we talk about constructionism is that there are these two types of construction that one of the best ways of constructing knowledge structures is by constructing things in the world. Uh, and there's this constant feedback back and forth. And whenever I construct things in the world, it helps me build new ideas. And by building new ideas, it gives me new ways of thinking about how to make things in the world. So it's this constant cycle of making things in the world, which enables me to make new ideas, which lets me make new things in the world, which lets me make new ideas. And that's the way I see what Seymour was trying to say with constructionism. I see Piaget's constructivism as more a theory of learning, of how people learn, mm -hmm. where Seymour's constructionism is more an approach to education. It's a strategy for education. I see them as somewhat different. It's not that one replaced the other. One is more about the way people learn. Constructivism is more about the way people learn. And constructionism is more a suggested strategy, an educational approach to help people learn, is the way I think about it. Well, these days, as I look in the educational community, in the last decade or so, especially in the educational research community, everybody says they're a constructivist. And increasingly teachers, everyone will say they're constructivists and that they are drawing on these ideas from Piaget. One thing that I sometimes find frustrating is that people often start by saying that they're constructivists. But then if you look at their practices, whether it's the practice of a teacher in a classroom or the practice of a toy designer or a media designer, that their practice as a designer or as an educator are totally at odds with what I think constructivism is really about. So I worry that it's a buzzword that's being tossed around these days. I don't think people really take it to heart in a serious way. And one should add, although I sort of, you know, I'm very influenced and I'm a strong believer on this sort of constructivist approach to learning and, and Seymour's constructionist strategies for education, it's also important to be upfront about the fact that it's not easy to carry out a constructionist approach to learning or to set up an educational approach taking seriously constructivist ideas. And I think that's one reason why they don't get followed through as well as I would wish. It's not that it's easy to follow through on these approaches. To really respect individual learners and their learning styles and the ways that they go about constructing knowledge is a challenge. Although I think these ideas are very important and I'm a deep believer in them, I'm also very aware that it's a challenge to realize them. Where teachers and students are regularly tested for what they've learned within a week, within a month, I wonder if a constructionist's approach to learning can coexist with all the testing that occurs in these heavy assessment days. I think it's challenging, and I do think that the ways in which the role that assessment plays in today's classrooms does make it more difficult to bring about the approach to education that I would be most supportive of. And it's for a few different reasons. I think it influences both what we're helping students learn and how we're helping students learn. First of all, just some of the things that I think are most important for students to learn aren't easy to assess. So if we need to have a very clear, often quantitative assessment of what students learn, then some things that I think are very important to be learning just don't enter the classroom because we don't have good ways of assessing them. 
but I don't think that means we should give up on those things just because they aren't easy to assess, but it's a challenge. It is important to be accountable and to make sure that what you're doing is valued and is bringing about important changes. So I think that's a dilemma. Also, oftentimes what's easiest to assess is knowledge of specific facts and specific skills. So if those are the easiest things to assess, then oftentimes both the curriculum drips in that direction. If what you're going to assess people on is specific facts and specific skills, then in fact, drilling, practicing, memorizing can be a very effective way at achieving those results. Again, I don't think those are what the goal should be, but if that's what the goal is, then those approaches to education and learning could be effective. So I do think it does steer a lot of education away from what's most important. Where did the inspiration for Scratch come from? A few different places. Partly it grows out of our long experience with these after-school centers, the computer clubhouses. We started these after-school centers for young people from low-income communities. And it was specifically set up to help young people learn to express themselves with new technologies, to design graphics and animations. One thing we found is that kids got very engaged with these activities, and Photoshop became very popular, and kids would grab images with a camera or, or scan an image and put together someone's head with someone else's body and make all sorts of great images with Photoshop. And I think there are a lot of you know, valuable activities there. But one thing we found is that it was much more difficult for the clubhouse members to create dynamic interactive projects, to create interactive animations, to create their own games. And we thought that was unfortunate that they couldn't do that. First of all, because a lot of them wanted to create interactive animations, interactive stories, interactive games, because they saw a lot of this on the internet and they wanted to create it, but they didn't have good tools for doing it. You know, a lot of times you'll see things online, they're made with Flash, but Flash really wasn't made for that audience. And for a lot of the young people coming to the clubhouse, maybe they could get started with Flash, but then it was hard to continue to really do the things they wanted to do. So there weren't the right tools out there to create what they wanted to create. We also saw this as a missed learning opportunity because we knew that in the process of designing and creating interactive projects, there's lots of opportunities for important learning experiences. So we saw that there was this problem. Both kids couldn't design what they want to design, and there was a missed learning opportunity. And the tools that are out there, like Flash, although they had many positive things about them, didn't really seem to be serving the audience that we were most interested in. Actually, around that time, another source of inspiration was I've had a lot of interaction over the years with Alan Kay. Sure. Alan's one of the, you know, the grandfathers of the personal computer, and a lot of them did a lot of the work on the graphical user interface, and has always been very interested in children's learning. And Alan had been working on a project called eToys that was built on top of a programming language called Squeak that his group had worked on. And when I saw eToys, I was very inspired. It was a, a type of media manipulation authoring environment to allow kids to manipulate media in creative ways. As I looked at it, I found it very exciting, but I didn't really think it was going to work with the audience I had in mind, mm -hmm. you know, with the clubhouses. And we had some, from our experiences over the years, drawing off of my work with Seymour Papert and his work with Logo. We had some ideas how we thought we could take some of the ideas from Alan Kay's eToys work and make it more accessible. Also, we want to make sure from the beginning to think of the community aspect of how people could share their projects with one another and to collaborate with one another because we saw that was going to be an important part of the learning process. So we want to see how we could take some, some of the things that are out there like eToys or things like Flash also, and how we could lower the floor, make it easier for kids to get started, 
and make it easier to share your creations with each other, to collaborate in different ways. So those were our goals. And again, we've been working for many years on programming languages for kids, from the work of Seymour Papert, the work we did with the Lego company on yeah. Lego Mindstorms. We developed some of the software for Lego Mindstorms. Mm -hmm. And we had learned a lot over the years about making graphical programming languages for kids. Mm -hmm. So we built on some of that experience, but focused rather than controlling things in the physical world, as with Lego Mindstorms, how can we help kids control things on the screen and then let them share their creations? So that's what we got started and what our goals were for Scratch. We're very fortunate we got a grant from the National Science Foundation to be able to work on this project. And then we worked for about four years under this National Science Foundation grant trying out different things, constantly working with kids along the way to see both what were kids interested in and what type of tools were intuitive for them and what would they do with the tools that we created. So we did prototype after prototype, tried them out with kids, and worked both on making this programming language for kids, a media manipulation tools, because we saw that kids wanted to manipulate media, and then start to create a website of how they could easily share their creations with each other. So a variety of different aspects of the project and that all came together about a year ago. We, have, we publicly launched Scratch mm -hmm. almost exactly one year ago. And it's been a very exciting to have it out in the world and attracting a growing community around it. Can you tell me about Scratch's journey since the moment the product has been made available online? It had a, a rocky start at the very beginning because there was so much demand on the first day that our server crashed. So we had a lot of learning to do of just how to deal with it, the demand for it. But that got stabilized quickly, and luckily we've been able to you know, support the community well since then. The things that I think I've been happiest with and maybe most surprised about, first of all, amazed by the sophistication of projects that people have done in Scratch, that people create things that are beyond what I imagined you could create with the language that we developed. And it's always exciting when you develop a piece of software and then people do things with it that you never imagined they could do with it. Like people make these incredibly accurate versions of old video games that are sophisticated in ways that, again, I didn't realize our software would be able to support. So I've been very impressed with the sophistication of what people work on. But even more so, I've been impressed with and pleased by the diversity of projects kids have created. You know, from the beginning, we knew we wanted to help kids make interactive games, interactive stories, interactive animations. But kids have found such creative ways of using the software and the website we hadn't expected. For example, I think of a girl in Ireland. Instead of making a whole game, she just started making some animated characters, putting them online with a message that said, I like making characters. Please feel free to use them in your stories or games. If you want a special character, just leave a message below and I'll make it for you. So she was like offering her consulting services on our website to make characters for others. So other kids started asking her to make characters for their games. And then they put their games online, and then another kid would say, oh, here's a new feature you could add to your game. In several of the cases now, kids have started their own online companies. The first was called Crank Inc., where it's a group of kids, one in Ireland, one in England, one in Russia, and one in the United States, started this company making games together, where they each were doing things, different parts of their games. That was something we were very pleased to see, but we hadn't imagined. Other things we see... At one point, I saw this project that was called Scratch News Network, you know, modeled after cable news network, uh -huh. SNN. And it had, like, a newscaster and was giving news about what was new on the Scratch website. In our running the site, we would feature certain projects on the homepage, and you could see the most loved projects. But here was somebody who was, like, setting themselves up as, as saying, I'm going to give you a newscast of what I see as the most important new developments on the website. 
And when I first saw that, my first reaction was, oh, that's cute. It's a simulation of a newscast. And then I stopped and I said, this is not a simulation of a newscast. This is a newscast. It's a newscast just as much as evening news on CBS is, but it was created by somebody to serve an audience. It was serving the audience of the Scratch community, telling them, here's what's new in your community. It was not a fake newscast or a simulated newscast or an artificial newscast. It was a real newscast. So that was, again, I never had thought about that. Or I mentioned that we feature projects on the home page. We then had, I see a project where somebody is giving advice of how to get your project featured on the home page of Scratch. So people are using Scratch projects to give advice to others on how to get their projects featured. So people are just using this tool in all sorts of different ways. The level of collaboration has also been exciting for us and the remixing that goes on. Right now, we're up to about 130,000 projects on the Scratch website. We've been very happy to see the large number of projects. But maybe even more important is of those 130,000 projects, more than 20,000 projects are what we call remixes, meaning that somebody took someone else's project, added things to it, and then re-uploaded it to the site with their own version of it. In the early days of the website, that led to lots of conversation where somebody would complain, so-and-so stole my project. And there were then good discussions on the discussion forums where we would try to give advice saying, well, wait a minute, the Scratch community is supposed to be a sharing community. And when you put things up on the website, we want to encourage other people to make use of it and extend it, that they should give you credit and acknowledge your contribution to it. Mm -hmm. We want people to build on each other's work. That's the way the best innovation comes, is people sharing their work that way. As we saw what was happening in the community, it influenced our design of new features. In the beginning of the website, if you put up a project and I added to it, if I didn't give you credit, there was no way that people would know that it was based on your project. We then automated it so that if I took one of your projects and added to it and put it on the website, it would automatically say that it was my project based on your project and give a link back to your project. So people can then trace through the history of how projects were based on other projects and it would automatically give a type of credit and acknowledgement. And our hope is to support this as that the culture of the community should be such that people feel pride in remixing. So if you can now see how many of your projects are remixed, it could give you a sense of pride. I think that's brilliant on a, on a number of levels, but one that you know, I remember reading Lawrence Lessig saying that there is no new creation without prior creation, yeah, yeah. and that there's a concept that easily transports into how kids who are enamored by certain creative works can expand upon it. Yeah. I know looking back on some of the more challenging software applications I've learned over the years, you usually learn the most by starting with what somebody else has already built and you kind of deconstruct and you go like, ah, that's how they made that scrolling feature. Or, ah, this is how they do it. So it's like instantly you can jump in and learn something. You know, you're not going to the manuals, but it's almost like you're getting a leg up on right. jumping into the world faster. Yeah. So it's both that you can learn from how the techniques that other people use, but you also be inspired by the possibilities. We see both mm-hmm. of those things happening. By looking at what's online, it gives you new ideas of what to create, but it also helps you learn the techniques of how to create it. And I sometimes quote a line from Marvin Minsky, Mm -hmm. a professor here and one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, when he was asked about Logo, the programming language that got into schools in the 80s. And Marvin's reaction to Logo, he said, well, it's a nice grammar, but there's no literature. Meaning that it's a nice programming language, but when we learn to read, part of the reason we learn to read and write is because we've read other literature and we're inspired by what we read. 
So children grow up reading children's books and they see great literature out there and it inspires them to want to write. But with Logo, you never sort of saw other great programs out there. You didn't see a great literature that would inspire you or help you learn how to create it. And so part of what the Scratch website does is it creates a literature of Scratch so you can be inspired by the great works of literature. Are there challenges that you see in getting teachers to use Scratch? I certainly think there are challenges along several dimensions. One is that Scratch doesn't fit so naturally into the existing curriculum. It's not the type of activity where you can say, oh, and this is going to help you learn concept X, which will be on the end of your exam and assess standard Y. So it doesn't necessarily fit so neatly into the existing curriculum. So that's one thing that makes it difficult to get into schools. I'll come back to that in a minute. A second thing that makes it difficult is that to really get the most out of Scratch does require someone spending some real time and hopefully in a supportive environment with some professional development activities to help learn how to make the most out of it. It's not just boot it up and you know everything about it. Some of the most important things to learn, you take some time and effort to learn. So providing teachers with the appropriate support to help them learn to make the most out of Scratch, not just learning the technical details, although that's part of it, but also how to make the most of it is one challenge. And then how they can fit it into their classroom activities is another challenge. So there are a few ways which I, I do see it getting out into schools. The place where maybe it's the easiest fit, but this only captures a slice of what Scratch is about, is in some of the technology studies classes, where you can see learning some things about programming or authoring is an important part of some middle schools now technology studies, or high schools with a computer science or computer programming class, it will fit in there. So where it's really into a technology studies or an IT type of class is one way it can fit. But I don't want it to be just there. I'd also like to see it used more broadly. One way it sometimes is getting used, and I would like to see it used more this way, is similar to the way that PowerPoint is used in many classrooms. PowerPoint is used as a general presentation tool. And whether students are doing a report on the rainforest of Costa Rica or whether they're doing a report on the presence of the United States, they might make a presentation using PowerPoint. I think with Scratch, you can use it as a presentation tool but I think it goes beyond PowerPoint. First of all, you can make richer, dynamic, interactive projects. So it extends the range of what you can create beyond the standard images and bullet points of text that is typical in PowerPoint. I also think it's a richer learning experience. So I think it can both be more expressive and a richer learning opportunity. So I think some teachers start to appreciate that and are starting to use it as a tool for kids to be able to use in a wide range of different activities for presenting. But there is a challenge in that it does take some time to get up to speed on Scratch. Again, it's not that you just turn it on and the next day you're expert. And within the constraints of many school environments, it's not easy to find that time. There are always going to be the adventurous teachers who will find the time for the things they see as important. I think right now the teachers who are using Scratch in their classrooms are oftentimes the adventurous teachers, the early adopters. So there's great things happening in schools. But I think that we need to find better ways to support more teachers. Are you finding any unique observations about Scratch being used internationally? Yes. It does have a pretty significant international following. First of all, it has a very big following in the United Kingdom, partly because there was a lot of press coverage by the BBC. So the word spread well. So there's a very large okay. contingent. We do have users all around the world in different places. 
In the early days of Scratch, it was primarily English, so that constrained who could use it. Mm-hmm. We've gradually been expanding. Right now, the software supports a wide variety of different languages in that there's a menu where you can choose from you now you know, more than a dozen languages, and it will convert the programming blocks into mm-hmm. the other language. Mm-hmm. But right now, there's still a couple constraints. Although it converts the programming blocks, it doesn't convert everything on the interface. Also, it only supports Latin characters, the same character set ah. as in English. Right now, it doesn't support Japanese, Chinese, Indian dialects. This summer, we're coming up with a new version of Scratch that will support all of those different character sets, even support languages like Hebrew that go right to left rather than left wow. to right. So it'll support a much wider range of character sets, and it'll support the full interface conversion. And we're also trying to get the website to be supported in more languages, not just the application, but also the website. So we're actively working on internationalization. So we, right now we do have some international users. I'm not sure of the percentage, but it's certainly used in dozens of countries around the world. By this summer, Scratch will be supported in more than two dozen languages. The translations were done by people in the field, not by us. So we just put out a call on one of the discussion forums saying, are people willing to translate? And we got lots of volunteers. And basically, we just send them a spreadsheet with all the English words, and they just fill in the words in their language. And, you know, we now have it translated into many other languages. But we really, I think this upcoming year, because it will be, we're supporting the languages better, we expect to see a real growth in the international use. Do you see Scratch having an equal appeal to girls as well as boys? It was certainly something that we were aiming for from the very beginning. I think we've seen a lot of interest across gender, and I think on the website we see both boys and girls and very different types of projects that I think can meet the interests of all different kids. One, again, that was important to me, that important to our design group from the beginning, was to make sure we supported and encouraged a wide range of projects because we knew different kids would be interested in different projects. And across gender lines, kids are going to be interested in different types of projects. Mm-hmm. We didn't want Scratch to become just a game site. But in some ways, it's easy for... Sometimes people will see it and say, oh, it's great for making games. And it is good for making games. And we were worried that that could become self-reinforcing. If a lot of people make games, and that's what shows up on the website, so people make more games. So I think we've taken a lot of efforts to make sure there's a wide variety of projects. I think that's helped us keep a variety of people with different backgrounds being interested. I don't know the exact percentages. Right now, there are some more boys than girls Mm -hmm. on this site. Although when we did the analysis, the girls on the site post just as many projects on average as the boys do. They're equally active participants. But we'd still like to improve the numbers some. It isn't quite balanced right now. One thing that we do like, though, just in supporting different backgrounds, this is not across gender lines. Like there was one 14-year-old from New Jersey who made one of the most popular projects and when we got to talk to him and his parents, his mother referred to him as a theater geek. That he never really had done so much with the computer, but he loved the theater. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this kid who had never really gotten engaged with the computer before, but loved the theater, then saw Scratch as his way of getting involved with the computer, we really liked that because we wanted to make sure we appealed to a wide range of kids, to not just kids who are the math science types of school, but to, quote, theater kids at school as well. We've been very happy that it's been appealing to kids with a wide range of different backgrounds. In reading through some of your published research, you describe the digital divide as something that's not just tied to issues of computer access, but also issues of fluency. Could you discuss how Scratch addresses issues of fluency to help minimize the digital divide? The good news is, I think the digital divide on lines of access 
will narrow over time. It's already narrowing, and mm -hmm. it will continue to narrow. And we can thank the rapidly declining costs of new technology, and that way I think that will continue, which makes new technologies accessible to a much wider range of people. So more people are getting their hands on technology. Still not everyone, and there's still barriers to entry because of cost, but the new technologies are becoming much more widespread than in the past. But I worry about a future where everyone has access to technology, but some people are using it just as a consumer, that all they're doing are pointing, clicking, and chatting, where others are able to design, create, and invent with the new technology. So I see that's where there's the risk of having a big divide between those who click, browse, and chat, and those who design, create, and invent. And in my mind, it's going to be a much richer experience both learning experience and more creative experience if people are able to design, create, and invent, and it's going to better prepare them to be full participants in the society of the future. By providing tools like Scratch, we're helping to provide opportunities for young people to grow up designing, creating, and inventing so that they are better prepared to be full participants in tomorrow's society where they're really able to use the technology to express themselves and to explore things in new ways. Could you share any insights into kids' social interactions that could lead to better online learning outcomes? For us, as we think about the Scratch website, I think that's really important to us is creating a respectful environment and a culture of respect. For online communities to work well, we need to establish a culture of respect. And it's not just because it's that we want to help kids learn how to be polite to each other, but since we want kids to be creating and designing things, and we want them to take risks, to try hard things, if you're part of a community where people are making insulting comments based on what you've created, you're not going to try new things. You're not going to take risks. So if you try to create something new and somebody makes an insulting comment about it, you're not going to take risks again. So we think it's really important for kids to take risks and to try new things. And it's only going to work if they're part of a respectful community. I think what we put a really high priority on is how can we help developers of a community of respect. Now, we put a lot of emphasis on that when we were creating these after-school centers, computer clubhouses. And again, the challenges in creating a community of respect and an environment of respect in an after-school center. But I think we learned a lot by doing that. I think there's still a lot that we have to learn in an online environment. Because in an online environment, we aren't working directly with the kids. They might be anonymous. We don't know who they are. We don't know things about their background. I mean, if, if we're working directly with a kid in the same room, we can learn more about the kid. It could be, provides a better way for us to give the appropriate feedback, which will help cultivate that environment of respect. It's challenging online to create that type of environment, but I think that's really important. I think that's one of our big goals. And it's never going to be perfect. You're always going to have new members who are going to make rude comments or insulting comments. But I do think once you get a real critical mass of a community that behaves in a certain way and that becomes the norms and the standards of the community, it's then easier to perpetuate that. And I think that's the most important goal for us, and I think it's the real important goal for all online communities. If online communities are really concerned about the development of the child and children's learning, then I think creating a culture of respect is critically important. This has been Scott Trailer interviewing Mitchell Resnick of the MIT Media Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts for Tech and Learning Magazine. This recording can be freely shared in its entirety for educational purposes only. 
portions of this interview can be accessed through the Tech and Learning website at www.techlearning.com, as well as the 360Kid blog at www.360kid.com slash blog. The music for this podcast is called Electronic Space and was written by Supersport. It is used under a Creative Commons license, and copies of this music file can be found at www.sectionz.com. That's S-E-C-T-I-O-N-Z.com. Thank you for listening.